chapter 12. Would you stand with me? We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of this chapter. A little bit of a transition that we see here in that as uh, we ended the 11th chapter with uh, looking at the church in Antioch, the fact that that that, that uh, believers in Christ were first called Christians in that city. Uh, we, we saw that the Lord had placed upon them a desire to give aid to uh, the church in Judea, uh, their Jewish brothers and sisters in the Lord, uh, and that aid was sent uh, to Judea uh, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, as we saw in verse 30 of chapter 11. Now in verses, uh, in chapter 12, uh, the scene changes to what's going on in Jerusalem. And well, let's read verses 1 to 11, and we will see exactly what we're going to be sharing about today. Uh, verse 1 to 11 in chapter 12 of Acts, and I'm reading from the New King James Version of God's Word. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. It's interesting how harassment turned to that. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now, it was during the days of unleavened bread, so when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night... Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him, raised him up, saying, Arise, quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know what was, or that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. And Father, we pray that as we look at this passage today, we will see the incredible work that you do on behalf of your people. Lord, we pray, Father, that you would have your way in our hearts. Lord, might we not only see this as 
a miraculous thing that you did on one night a couple thousand years ago in Jerusalem for Peter and for the church then. Right, we see it as the way that you work on behalf of your people in all times, always, throughout our stay here on this earth. And so, God, have your way. Speak to our hearts. And, Lord Jesus, be glorified from it all. Be praised. And might your Holy Spirit teach us and lead us into all your truth today. In your precious name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. You guys may be seated. This is a, a great passage of Scripture. I think uh, as we pick up next week and look at the rest of the story, uh, I have to laugh every time I read that, but that's for next week. But this passage in which we see these things taking place, uh, just incredible. Now, now as, as Luke writes, he he had just now shared with us about what was going on in Antioch and, and the aid to Jerusalem and all that, or to Judea and all that, and as we already uh, gave to you, as we looked at. But now we see uh, the scene shifting to Jerusalem, and we see that Herod the king begins to persecute the church. The way it's worded in the first verse, now about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Now we see the beginning here, well not just simply the beginning. We, we already have seen one of the followers of Christ uh, who had been killed, Stephen, killed by the Jewish people, the first martyr for Christ, right? And, and here in these verses, the second verse in particular, we see James, the brother of John, killed with the sword as well. Uh, not with, not, he was killed as well, him with the sword. Of course, Stephen was, had been stoned to death, as we read back in chapter 7. But James is the second martyr for Christ, the third from the apostolic band. Um, that's, not, that's not some rock group or anything like that, but the, the, the apostles of, of Jesus. Um, Herod began to harass the church. We see spiritual warfare, the spiritual warfare in this world just heating up. We see it heating up here. And it is something that has not, over the last 2,000 years, has not backed down. Spiritual warfare is very real. Are you guys aware of that? Oh, I would guess about a quarter of you answered. Are you guys aware of that? Yes. There you go. It is something we have to be aware of, right? We need to be aware of it every single day. If we're not aware of the reality of spiritual warfare, we will be so confused about life, so confused about why God doesn't do something that he's able to do. You know, and, and we ask those questions anyway with that awareness. Just imagine, if we, didn't, if we had no, no, no idea of what spiritual warfare is all about, I mean, imagine trying to walk with the Lord consistently in this world, right? I mean, that, that helps us to stay focused. It really does. But we all are engaged in that warfare. Now, if you're like me, and I think you 
you all are, at least on this point, you know, when I gave my heart to Christ, I didn't know this, right? Did you know this when you got saved? No, we, we, don't, we don't realize this. All we know is we're sinners and Jesus died for, for our sins and we wanted to, to be forgiven. We wanted to go for heaven. Sign me up. I want to go, Jesus. I'm going to trust in you, right? We understand who you are. We're going to do this. But we learn. We, we learn as, we, as, as we're taught the Bible, as we read scripture on our own. I mean, the, the, the pages of the Bible are filled with it. Uh, I mean, I, 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 would, I would venture to say that, that almost on every page of the, of the Bible, there's something that takes place that shows the reality of this spiritual warfare that we're involved in that began in the Garden of Eden when, when the serpent tempted Eve. And it's always over this issue of truth and or who God actually is. And as the serpent asked Eve, has God really said... That's always an issue, and, is, and it is definitely an issue in our culture today. It always will be. It's front and center, because our enemy, the devil, Satan, the great deceiver, the one who wants to destroy us, he wants us to ask those questions. But in the spiritual warfare, one of the things that we see take place is that we see men fighting against God. That's what, that's what we see Herod doing here. He's not just harassing the church. He's fighting against God, and he's fighting against the work of God. And, and, and we see people in our world and, and throughout history fighting against God. Sometimes it's even God's own people fighting against God. As, as we can get caught up in the flesh. But that's just the reality of spiritual warfare. There are, there are a number of passages, of course, that speak about the reality that God is the one who does battle for his people. The battle belongs to the Lord. We, we, we find that, I, I love the way it's depicted in 1 Samuel chapter 17, David uh, fighting Goliath, and that's exactly what David says to Goliath. The battle is the Lord's, and he's going to give me your head. You know, uh, and th not exactly, it's a paraphrase, but that's in, in essence what, what he said. And so that's our reality. The Lord fights our battles. Without the Lord, the spiritual warfare will destroy us. With the Lord, we can reign victorious, right? So we've got to be following the Lord. We've got to take heed to the directions that he is giving us. In this chapter, we very clearly see that spiritual warfare that's taking place through the persecution of the church at the hands of King Herod. And we're going to see how God works on behalf of his people as well. A little bit about King Herod. Now, this is not the same Herod that we saw earlier in the Bible, not the same guy who we see in Luke chapter 1 and the beginning chapters of Matthew. That, that is Herod the Great. And he reigned as king of Palestine from 37 B.C. until 4 B.C., uh, right around the time 
of Jesus' birth. This particular Herod that we see here in chapter 12 of Acts is Herod Agrippa I, who is the king of Palestine as well. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. And Herod Agrippa I here is the father of Herod that we see later in Acts in chapters 25 and 26 when Paul the Apostle is giving his testimony uh, of how he got saved to Festus and Agrippa there. So it's a family that, that reigned for a number of years there uh, uh, under Roman rule, as a, as a Roman, uh, but it's just a different Herod. But he, this, this guy here is the grandson of Herod the Great, who, by the way, built the temple, rebuilt the temple, I should say, uh, um, actually, I shouldn't say rebuilt it, who um, expanded it. He expanded it is, is a better way to put that. And it became something that the uh, people of, of uh, Israel were very, very proud of in terms of the, the uh, makeup of it and the extensive uh, uh, grandeur of the temple. Now, we, we don't have many details at all about the killing of James, other than the fact that he was killed uh, with the sword. We're told that he's the brother of John, of course, uh, the, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, the two of them were, were called in the gospel the sons of thunder, if you recall. Uh, he was one of the three that was, was in the inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Uh, they went with Jesus into the in, inner uh, inner portion of the garden to, to pray with him. Uh, one of the three that Jesus said, stop and, and, and pray uh, here. Uh, and as he went further in to pray to his father. Something I read from uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Uh, if you guys don't have that book, I would encourage you to get it. it. It's a fascinating book that talks about, well, martyrs, martyrs for Christ. You know, and gives you a little history of the families and so forth, a little bit of history that we don't see in the Bible, especially, well, in, in this case, something that could be there. The Lord chose not to put it here, but uh, Fox uh, wrote about it, quoting from some writings in history. And I, I want to read a, a, a something for you here. Uh, is it going to be placed up on the, there we go. Uh, he's also called James the Great. Here's another apostle, James, who is called James the Lesser because, well, he's not as well known as this James. Um, but he writes this. The next martyr we, we meet with, after Stephen, of course, according to St. Luke, in the history of the apostles' acts was James, the son of Zebedee, the elder brother of John and a relative of our Lord. He's a distant cousin of Jesus uh, on, uh, on his mama's side, on Jesus' mama's side, Mary. For his mother Salome was cousin German to the Virgin Mary. It was not until 10 years after the death of Stephen that the second martyrdom took place. For no sooner had Herod Agrippa been appointed governor of Judea than with a view to ingratiate himself with them, he raised a sharp persecution against the Christians and determined to make an effectual blow by striking at their leaders." The account given us by an eminent primitive writer, Clemens Alexandrinus, almost sounds like a disease, doesn't it? <laughs> Ought not to be overlooked. 
that as James was led to the place of martyrdom, his accuser was brought to repent of his conduct by the apostles' extraordinary courage and undauntedness and fell down at his feet to request his pardon, professing himself a Christian and resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone. That's amazing, isn't it? Hence, they were both beheaded at the same time. Thus did the first apostolic martyr cheerfully and resolutely receive that cup which he had told our Savior he was ready to drink. You recall that was his words to Jesus along with John. Timon and Parmenas suffered martyrdom about the same time the one at Philippi and the other in Macedonia. These events took place in A.D. 44. So a little bit of history there. It's interesting to see that, and it's interesting to see how some historical uh, uh, writings will, will just go alongside what we see in, in the biblical accounts to give us some further information about them without taking away from the truth that we see in the Scriptures. Just a few more details, just a few more details here. But we see that this pleased the Jewish people. And we see this in verse 3. Because he, Herod, saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So the feast was going on. The, uh, the Roman authorities in Jerusalem had a, had a, 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 a pact so to, so to speak, with the Jewish people that they wouldn't you know, throw anybody in prison during this time or they wouldn't execute anybody, that kind of thing, until the feast day was over. This was, happened to be the Days of Unleavened Bread that culminated with the, with the Feast of the Passover at the end of that. And so we, we see uh, in this third verse, it was during those days, and he was going to wait until after the Passover, which we see in the fourth verse, uh, before he was going to actually kill Peter, before he would execute him. It pleased the Jews. When he saw that, he said, well, that's cool. I'm going to do it again. He's obviously a man who was more desirous of pleasing people than doing something that would be considered the right thing to do. He's a politician. Politicians today get caught up into that. But is it only politicians? No, no. Anyone who has any amount of power at all, and everyone in this room has power, or perhaps wants to gain power, and we can do that by, as was said in, in Fox's Book of Martyrs, by ingratiating ourselves into the uh, lives of other people, by doing something for them. And, 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 and what, what's one of the codes that we find in human life? Apart from Christianity, this needs to be apart from Christianity. But this is something that is very natural and something that we see often in relationships. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. You do something for me and I owe you. I do something for you and you owe me. 
And that's the game that we play, right? That's very, very common. And it's common because that's, that's, that's in our hearts. That's the way that we are. I want you to like me so that it can somehow give me some gain, just gain in your sight, so that you will like me and do things for me. And if you happen to be someone who has some kind of social clout, then the better for me. But we're not to be a respecter of persons, are we? No word to treat all people alike. Herod Agrippa I, as a politician, was a people pleaser. Is people pleasing a good thing? Well, the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So he obviously is saying here that he is a bond, as a bondservant of Christ, he is not a people pleaser. But he also writes this, Romans 15, 2 to 3a, the first part of verse 3. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself. He writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. And then in verse 33 of the same chapter, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Is pleasing people wrong? Is being a people pleaser wrong? In and of itself, no. But it all depends on motive, doesn't it? It all depends on motive. Why? And so, so, I mean, many of us can ask the question. We, we, we can become very inquisitive and, and, and very suspicious when someone is kind of treating us a certain way, and we'll ask the question, what do you want from me, right? Isn't that a common thing? What do you want from me? And sometimes we'll ask them to their face. Most of the time, probably not. But we're wondering. And if that question is asked of me or you as followers of Christ, what do you want from me? I pray that we're able to give the answer, nothing. I, I just want to love you. I want to do something that is going to bless you. I want to follow the steps of my Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for you, gave himself for me, and I'm giving myself for you, loving you in the same way that he has loved me as he commands me to do. That needs to be the answer that we give, right? Amen, amen. That makes it different. So in a world where we see, a, a, especially this time of year, during Christmas time, there's a lot of giving. You know, people giving to others. A lot of gift giving that is taking place. This past Tuesday was Giving Tuesday. I'm not sure how that happened, that it became a day of, I don't know if it's the date. What was the date Tuesday? Um, November what? I don't know. Anyway, 22nd, 22nd. Give, 
Was it, it was the 30th, huh? No, it was the 29th. 29th, that's, that's right, it's the 29th. Um, I don't know, anyway. I'm just, I'm kind of just kind of wondering how that happens. Every day is something. Today is, anyway. But might we give out of heart just wanting to bless others? And following what Jesus said are the greatest two commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and a seconds like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? That's what it's all about. By the way, the hokey pokey isn't what it's all about. This is what it's all about in living our lives. It's loving God first and loving people secondly. So it's all about motive. It's all about motive. King Herod desired to gain something through these murders. And so he's willing to murder in order to gain the popularity among the people that he had just been given the oversight of. And so that, 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 that's how uh, some in leadership function. Now, because of that, he arrests Peter. As he arrests Peter, this is taking place, as we see in verse 3, during the days of unleavened bread. And then in verse 4, we see, so when he arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So he was going to leave him there in prison. After Passover was over, he's going to pull him out and execute him, just as he had done with James. Note, verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Peter was kept in prison, but. But. Luke didn't write, but God had his back. He didn't write, God had a different plan. He wrote, but the church was praying for him constantly. The Holy Spirit directed Luke to write it that way, I believe, because we need to understand and believe and know that there is power in prayer. Power in prayer, not just prayer in and of itself, but power in prayer when it is offered to the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, when it is offered to the one who created the heavens and the earth, when it is offered to the God of the Bible, who hears our prayers, considers our prayers, answers our prayers. Do you believe God answers prayer? That's why we pray, right? Why would we pray if we didn't believe that? Why would we pray if we didn't think he could do something that we're asking him to do? But first and foremost, aside from just asking him to do things for us, we are to make our supplications. We are, we are to, to, to uh, pray for other people, certainly. But we are first and foremost to honor him and acknowledge him to be who he is. You know, the, the, the model prayer that Jesus gave to us is to begin this way. Our Father, who's in heaven. Hallowed be your name. 
might your name be regarded as holy. Might all people see you as one who is set apart from all of your creation. You know, that's, that's where we start. And then other things just begin to fall into place. But constant prayer, I, I, I love the way that we see the contrast here. Peter was in, pray, was in prison, but the church was praying for him. I love that. And we need to be praying for each other. Even as I shared with you a few moments ago, just asking that you continue to pray for me and, and for my bride. I, I know that you're doing that, and I know that it makes a difference. I know that it makes a difference. And it is my constant prayer as well that, that as you guys are praying that, that the Lord is going to heal my wife. He hasn't yet. He may not. He may have a different plan. He may, but, but you know what? As, and, and I've shared this with people around me, just the idea that if, if God has something different for us, knowing God for who he is, and as painful as this is, as painful as this is, Somehow, because Romans 8, uh, 8.28 is always true, all things work together for good for those who love God and are the called according to His purpose. That is always true. It's true here. If God sees to do it differently than what I want Him to do, then His way is the better way. Now, that doesn't make sense to me right now. You know what I mean? It doesn't make sense to me right now. But I believe it's true. So we, and, and th this is the nature of living in this world that's so broken. It's just the nature of living in this world that is so broken. But might we be praying for one another? In this case, we see that God saw fit to do what we see here, he's about to do, that, of course, we already read. But before we get to that, the, the action of God and, and God's response to the prayer of the church, note Peter. He was there in prison, of course. Church is praying. Then verse 6, when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping. Peter was sleeping. How many times have you been laying awake, lying awake in bed, worried about some issue in your life, about what was going to take place the following day? Can't go to sleep. Peter is sound asleep. Now, Herod had placed four teams of four soldiers to watch over him. Sixteen soldiers to watch over him. Now we're told here that he shackled the two. There are two more at the front of the, of the gate into, into his cell. Where were the other twelve? Maybe it was just those four on their own shift. Maybe they ran four shifts of six hours. Maybe they ran two shifts of 
uh, of uh, 12 hours, and there were four others standing around. So I don't, we don't know that, that detail, but we do know where four of them were. I would assume that, was, that were four shifts of six hours. That's what I would assume. But you got these soldiers, the, these elite soldiers. In our culture, they're uh, uh, army rangers or navy seals. These kinds of guys who were watching over Peter, shackled to him, two of them. But the church was praying. But the church was praying. And he was asleep. He had a perfect peace in his heart, even in that situation, so that he slept like a baby. Even to the point that as, as he's sleeping, he's bound with two chains between two soldiers, guards before the door, keeping the prison. And behold, an angel over seven stood by him. A light shone in the prison. That didn't wake him up. He had to strike him in the side. Boom, wake up, Peter. Wake up. And Peter's going... He was so sound asleep, he didn't know until he was outside the city that this was actually real, that he was actually walking out of the prison. He thought it was a vision, we're, we're told. That's amazing to me, that he had that kind of peace. Well, it wasn't too many years before this that Jesus had told him, along with the other apostles, in John 16, 33, these things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Has that become an important verse to you? I hope so. It's a lifeline for me sometimes. That truth, that in me you may have peace, Jesus said. This is why I'm telling you the things I'm telling you, that in me you may have peace. Promising us that in the world we will have tribulation. Anyone who lives in this world, regardless of who they are, where they live, what their faith is, their ethnicity, their race, their culture, their nationality, whatever it may be, everyone will have tribulation, does have tribulation, every one of us. Why? Because we're in this world. That's what this world is all about. Again, the hokey pokey isn't even what the world's all about. I'm sorry. We will suffer tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world, Jesus said. If we belong to him, we may have peace. Now, he doesn't tell us that in him we will have peace, we may have peace. Because let's face it, even as believers, sometimes we don't rely on him to the degree that we should. And because we don't, there are times that the enemy steals the peace and, and rests in, in our hearts away from us, and we succumb to fear rather than peace, right? And prayerfully, the Lord brings us back quickly understand, but that's just the reality of what it is. In John 21, 28, Jesus said this, 
specifically to Peter. I'm sorry, 21.18, excuse me. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And then John went on to say by this, he told him how he was going to die. Well, he wasn't old yet. This wasn't going to be happening just quite yet. Peter understood that tribulation would take place. He also understood that the Lord Jesus would give him peace. And it's not like he's blind to what's going on. It's not like he's blind to the fact that one of his best friends had just been executed by this wicked king. And it's not like he didn't understand that the king planned to execute him as well. But it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I go back to that too. What they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar said, who's the one who's going to rescue you from my hands? Well, the Lord showed him. But they said, you know, the, the Lord, our, our, our Lord God, Yahweh himself, he can deliver us. He will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your image. Even if he doesn't. It's the perfect piece of being able to say that he may or may not. I may have to suffer the ultimate in this, but I am not going to bend my knee to you. I only bend my knee to my God. Amen? And so we live our lives in that way. That's what Peter was doing, basically. You know, he, he will overcome the world. He'll overcome this somehow. And if I die, I experience the ultimate overcoming experience being with him. So, I, I mean, it's, it's like a win-win situation, right? You know, I mean, go ahead and kill me. I'm longing for the day that I come before Christ. Physically, somehow, right? Philippians 4, 6 and 7, another popular passage that we, that we look at. The Apostle Paul writing here, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Now, Peter had not yet read this from the hand of the Apostle Paul. Paul hadn't yet written it. But it was in Peter's heart. He'd walked with Jesus for three and a half years. And, that, and just some of what I've already said, he experienced with him. So he was at peace. And aside from that, he also saw this, Mark 4, verses 35 to 41. He saw the peace of Jesus in a very dramatically dangerous situation. In Mark 4, verse 35, we read this, And on the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, speaking of Jesus, of course, Let us cross over to the other side the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him, and a great windstorm arose. You guys know this passage, right? The great windstorm arose. The waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. But he, everybody else was, was fearful because the boats were going to sink, but he was asleep. 
They awoke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? I thought you loved us. Don't you care we're dying? Right? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. There was a great calm. Now, that had to be an amazing thing to see. The storm, the wind blowing the, the, the water from the lake into the boat. They're about to sink. Jesus stands up and says, peace be still. The wind stopped. The lake was suddenly calm. Miraculously, suddenly calm. The stillness of the night, not a sound. Perfect and complete tranquility. That's what Jesus does for us. The storm may be raging, but we can have that perfect peace and tranquility within us because it doesn't have to affect us the way that the enemy, the God of this age, wants it to. We can rest in our Lord Jesus. And then, of course, these, these disciples said, or they, they, verse 41. No, 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 let, let, verse 40. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Well, that's a question for all of us at times, isn't it? Why are you so fearful? Why is it when the world, I mean, over the last couple of years, the world has pre been preaching death, 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 death for their period of time. Every night, if you watch the news, you're talking about how many people died of COVID. Why? Why did the world do that? To make us fearful. Why are you so fearful? Why is it that you have no faith? Are we going to believe what Jesus said? Or are we just going to look at the things around us and hear what the world is saying? Not that COVID wasn't real, not that it's not real. It is. Like every disease, every virus, there, there's a reality to it. But what has Jesus said? Does that make a difference? In the world, you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. As these men, verse 41, and they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and see, obey him. Now this is Mark chapter 4, early in his ministry. Early in his ministry. He began to show them who he is. The creator of the heavens and the earth. The master of the natural world. King over all creation. Right? Oh, we need to believe those things. 
So Jesus knew they were going to go to the other side. And he told them they were going to make it on the other side because he said, let's go to the other side. When Jesus said, let's do this, what's going to happen? It's going to happen. We're going to do this. They would have made it. But he said, where's your faith? Either you weren't listening, maybe you weren't paying attention, but I told you we would make it to the other side. Where's your faith? Here in Acts 12, Peter knew. He had a peace in his heart because he had spent time with Jesus. He heard what he said. He believed what he said. He saw what he did. He saw his, he saw Jesus' response to danger. He said, okay. I'm going to go to sleep. I'm not sure what tomorrow's going to bring. But I'm tired. I'm going to go to sleep. Well, might we have that kind of peace of peace. Later, Peter wrote in Second Peter chapter two, verse nine, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Guys memorize that. The Lord knows how to deliver you. He knows how to deliver you. Amen. Let's look at what happened in the following verses. So we see that in verse 8, well, verse seven, the end of verse 7, note the, the miracles that are taking place here. I mean, there are individual miraculous things that take place. I mean, first of all, the angel shows up. There's this bright light. That's not natural. That's miraculous. We, we, we see that at the end of verse 8, the chains fell off of his hands. Our Lord Jesus has the key to every lock and chain that the enemy might try to use on us, doesn't he? And he's the one who loosens the chains. The chains fell off. And so Peter is just kind of not yet awake and just kind of saying, what's going on here? Thinking that he's seeing a vision as he's sleeping. The angel said, gird yourself and put on your sandals. So he did. Get dressed. Okay. Put on your outer cloak. So he did. And then, and, and follow me, verse 8. And so he went out, followed him. Thought that this was a vision. Verse 10. Then they were past the first and the second guard posts. They came to an iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. Um, it didn't open itself on its own accord. It just seemed to. The Lord opened up for them. Maybe the, maybe the angel addressed the gate and said, open sesame. No. Um, and... <laughs> And, and said something along the lines of, in the name of the Lord Jesus, open up, or something like that. But, guys, our Lord is master over everything, even inanimate objects. Right? I mean, this is an incredible story. And it is designed by God to speak to our hearts about the way He wants to work in our lives in regard to the chains that the enemy wants to use to, to bind us. Some kind of an addiction, for example. 
but in Christ we are free. Later on, we're going to see that these guards assigned to watch over Peter are going to be executed for their failure to keep Peter in prison. Poor guys. How could they fight against God? And maybe they made that argument, but it didn't hold with, with, with Aaron. I'm sure they told them, it's like, we don't know what happened. I mean, they were blinded. They, they, they didn't hear any chains falling or gates opening. Peter was asleep between them. They were asleep next to him. I'm sure that the Lord just struck them in some way to cause them to remain asleep, not allowing them to wake up. But again, these are top-rate elite soldiers, Navy SEALs, and Peter got away from them. No fault of their own. It was the hand of God. We can't fight against God. But a, a, a miracle just in the fact that they did not hear anything, see anything, feel anything. They were totally unaware of what was going on. The outer gate opening by itself, the hands of God. And finally, when he got outside the city, let's read verses 10 and 11 once again. When they were past the first and second guard post, they came to an iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. He delivered him as far as he needed to go, and now Peter could get, get, go the rest of the way himself. And that's when he woke up. Now, he basically was sleepwalking the whole time, thinking that he was, I mean, uh, kind of aware, but he thought it was a vision. Well, this would be cool if this really happened. And then verse, verse 11, he came to himself. He said, now I know for certain. He's, ba he's basically saying, this is real. This is really happening. I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel, has delivered me from the hand of Herod, the king. There is no man powerful enough to keep you from the hand of God's protection, if he so deems to protect you. Which leads to a question in just a second. I know the Lord has sent his angel, delivered me from the hand of, the, of, of Herod, and from all the expectation of the Jewish people, as Herod is doing what they want him to do. Peter came to himself. This idea of coming to herself, it just provoked something in my mind. The words of Jesus come to me. You know, uh, when we wake up, we need to come to him. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Again, the idea of rest heavy laden, being imprisoned, the worries and cares of the world. I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace in Jesus. But James was killed, but Peter was saved. What's up with that? Bottom line, we have to say, I don't know. 
other than the fact that we, kn we do know that Peter was con continued to be used by God incredibly. He's still being used by God. I, I, I just shared with you to memorize something that he wrote years later in 2 Peter 2.9. He knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. He's still ministering. I guess the Lord was through with James, but he wasn't through with Peter yet. That's the best I can come up with. Anyone come up with anything better than that? But even then, we might have a contest. Who can come up with the best explanation? It doesn't even matter what we say. Because God knew. He had his plan. His thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so his thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. That brings to me a lot of comfort in, in my trial. In the temptation to somehow question God or doubt him. His ways and his thoughts are higher than mine. That means I don't understand him a lot of the times. Because he's, his thoughts are beyond me. Why did God do this? I don't know. We'll find out someday. You know? I mean, that, that's reality. But you know what? Because God is who he is, it's good. The pain that those of us who are suffering pain right now is something that is going to work together for good. That's God's promise. He is good, isn't he? This doesn't make him bad. doesn't make him evil. He's still good. He's always good. He's always kind. He's always loving. He's always gracious. He's always merciful. He's always just. He has all wisdom, all knowledge. All power. He loves us. He loves you always. We're tempted to question God. We're tempted to question his love for us. I thought you loved me. But wait a minute. We're misinterpreting what we see. It's a misinterpretation on our part. That's what that is. It's got nothing to do with it. He knows how to deliver you. Then Lord, deliver me. He may not. Why not? That's God's territory. Or as we might say, that's above my pay grade. Right? Well, that's an important thing for us to understand too, guys. Some things we just simply won't understand right now. Paul writes to the Corinthians, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Someday we'll understand. But right now, we need to be happy, we have to be happy, and we have to be satisfied with the fact that I don't see it, but my God does. He's watching over me. He's got my back. He'll deliver me if he sees fit. And if he doesn't, there's something good in that. We just have to believe that. Amen? We've got to believe that. And certainly with Peter, we see the result of it. He is released from this prison. A couple of verses I want to close with. By the way, we just sang a song this morning. Something that struck me is one of the, one of the lines in it. Till the day that death shall loose me. Death 
Hallelujah. I love that. Do you see your own death that way? As being loosed to the greater thing, which is loosed into the presence of God because of your faith in Jesus, right? Amazing what the Lord has for us in these things. You know, Philippians 1, 21 to 25 says this, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. He called death departure. Nevertheless, I, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. In other words, I know he's not finished with me, so I'm going to remain. And so I, I, I rejoice in that. But if I, when the day comes that I'm going to be executed, I, I, I kind of think that by this time, Paul probably understood that that was going to be how he, he would die. But until I depart, I'm going to serve my Lord, and you're going to be blessed because of it. And after I depart, that's going to be better for me. That while I'm here, I'm going to, as Jesus said, occupy until he comes. Be about the Lord's business. Till the day that death shall loose me. In the book of Job, we see in the first two chapters something that is very telling in regard to the goal of our enemy. We know the story of Job. We, we know what happened with him. We know the, 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 the absolute heartache that he, that he suffered. You know, losing his family, losing his business, losing everything. He's, he's stricken with, with, with sickness, sat, sitting outside the, 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 the gate, scraping the boils off of his, his skin. You know, his wife tells him, why don't you just curse God and die? I mean, these kinds of things are going on with him, but he never sinned with his lips. But listen listen to this. And, and as, as, as our Lord God is speaking with Satan in heaven, there's this, they're having some kind of an angel's convention, and even the fallen angels are invited, at least Satan is. And after the Lord points out Job... You know, the enemy says, of course, I mean, you've blessed him so much, why wouldn't he praise you? He's, and then in verse 1 of chapter, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 11, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord allows Satan to do his thing with him, destroys everything around him, takes away his family, all these things, like I said. And then still, he, would not, he wouldn't curse God. He wouldn't sin with his lips. He actually worshiped God. That one verse toward the end of chapter 1 where we see Job hears all these things, what, what he's lost, even the death of his 10 children. And he dresses in sackcloth and ashes. He mourns, bows before, falls on his face, 
and worships God. Man. But then second chapter, Satan said, touch him. Kill him. And ultimately the Lord tells him, don't take his life, but touch his body in any way you please. In chapter 2, verse 5, this is the word of Satan. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. Same thing. He will surely curse you to your face. The enemy wants us as believers, as God's children, to curse our God to his face. That's what he's up to. If he can't destroy us, he wants to move us to that place where we'll curse him. Let's not let him do that. Let's understand what he wants. Let's continue to worship him. Let's continue to praise him. Let's continue to bow before him. Let's continue to submit to his lordship in our lives, acknowledging his goodness, his mercy, his grace, his love for us, all that we know about him. Because there are just certain things that we don't understand. But I'm in his hand, and so are you. It will be good. Thankfully, we're not limited to life in this world. Amen? Father, help us. Help us, we pray. Help us to live our lives for you in such a way that you are honored and glorified. Where there's a reality to the spiritual warfare that we go through, a reality to the, the things that the enemy brings into our lives to hurt us, to somehow distract us, to cause us to curse you, God, to your face. That's his desire. That's what he wants. Lord, I pray that you'd have your way in our hearts today. Might we even right now where we sit today, might we consider these truths and, and recommit ourselves to a life of praise and worship of you, understanding who you are, understanding the reality, the reality of all of your knowledge and all of your wisdom, all that you know, understanding that your thoughts and your ways are far beyond our own, that we submit to your ways and allow you to pour your grace upon our lives. And so, God, have your way. Be praised, glorified, and honored in our lives, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand together, guys.